welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today um, I have a very exciting show for you with a very exciting guest. Um, Judge um, Ginger Lerner Wren, uh, and, and she has just written a book that, you know, this is so timely um, because, because there is such a problem, an increasing problem, of uh, people with mental illness ending up in court and um, getting years of jail and prison and, and, uh, and worse um, when really what they've needed is um, mental health treatment all along that they never got. Uh, you know, there are many, in, when you look at um, people who have committed crimes, you know, t- typically school shootings, but not just that, um, there is such a, a pattern in their background, and one of the parts of the puzzle includes that there is some untreated or poorly treated uh, kind of mental illness that, that was there, you know, for a long time, before they, a long time before they committed whatever the crime was. And, of course, it's sad for the victims, tragic for the victims of the crimes, but it's also sad for the person who, had they been treated appropriately... Um, wouldn't have wound up in that situation to begin with. Well, um, that's why it gives me great pleasure to, uh, to have as a guest Judge Ginger Lerner Wren today because she actually was the first person to develop a court um, in her court in Florida, uh, taking it on herself to develop the first um, mental health court, she, and her her new book is called A Court of Refuge: Stories from the Bench of America's First Mental Health Court. So, welcome to the show, Judge Lerner Wren. <laughs> Thank Do you, you Dr. Dr. Call Lieberman. You Judge and it is it's a real honor, first of all, to have a seat on your couch. <laughs> well, and, thank you. Uh, I just can't tell you what a thrill uh, it is, first of all, to meet you. And to have this wonderful opportunity to talk about a court of refuge and to talk about all of these issues, uh, which really are so poignant. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, vexing, if you will, throughout the entire nation. So thank you for having me. Well, you're welcome. Before we get into the actual um, court, you know, the beginnings of this court, Mm-hmm. which actually began, well, you were appointed in 97, right? That's correct. I, was, uh, I ran for office, uh, for judicial office, and I was appointed for, I have two courts, actually. I, I'm a county court judge uh, in the 17th Judicial Circuit of Florida, which is Broward County, and I think that uh, many of your listeners uh, may uh, be familiar with Broward County. You know, we just suffered just such a horrible uh, tragedy at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. And our community, of course, is really uh, grieving. And uh, my, the courthouse 
just to give your audience some perspective, the court, uh, the courthouse is actually about 20 minutes away uh, from Parkland, and it sits in the city of Fort Lauderdale. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, I've been there. <laughs> um, yes, and of course, an incredible tragedy that is having uh, huge repercussions. Uh, of course, it's interesting and, and tragic that today, you, you must have heard there's a, there was a school shooting in Maryland as well. I did. I did. You know, it's just uh, we are in the midst of how many terrible epidemics uh, can we be in the midst of, you know, at one time between the opioid epidemic and the escalating rate of suicide, of course. I also sit on the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, and, uh, you know, with this gun violence. So there's a lot, uh, a lot to talk about on the couch. Yes. Um, well, uh, before we get into that, I, I, what I'm interested in is um, how you, like when you were a little girl, you know, I always do this, when you were a little girl, <laughs> yeah, I think when you it's were a little girl, you didn't know that there would be such a thing as a mental health court. <laughs> no, I I didn't. Of course I didn't. I don't think that even when I, even when I, well, it's interesting when we started the court, of course, we didn't know it hadn't been done before. I don't, I don't think our community even ever thought about that. But when I was going back to your question, um, uh, you know, when I was a little girl, um, I knew uh, I always wanted to do some kind of, of civil rights work, and that was something that I knew very, very early, um, and I think that my trajectory in my legal career, which was very, very unusual, I feel, um, led me perfectly, perfectly uh, to be the one assigned to this unique and specialized uh, problem-solving court. So, but when you, so at some point, like, so you became a lawyer because of wanting to do some kind of civil work? I mean, was that what drew you to law? And then my question is, where did you, what made you curious or interested in uh, mental health? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. So um, I've always had a very, as you indicated, a, uh, repeated that I, I was very interested in civil rights work. I'm very, very interested um, really, in I guess you know, in really helping my community and making the world a better place, because those are the values of my family. And when I became a lawyer, um, actually, and I don't know if people go through this, you know, in, in, when they in, in other areas, but I really couldn't find the right fit. Uh-huh. Uh, I was looking for a more humanistic uh, kind of legal practice, and I was trying to get into a, more of a public interest uh, slot, if you will, in the, in the legal career. I couldn't find it. And finally, a position arose where I was uh, appointed to head what's called an Office of Public Guardianship. And you may be familiar with guardianship mm-hmm. um, yes. in, your, in your role. As a, as a forensic psychologist and psychologist uh, generally, and that was for adults, where the probate court found uh, individuals incapacitated and in need of guardians. And the people that I served in my program uh, were indigent and had all kinds of disabilities, including serious, 
persistent mental illnesses and uh, maybe suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's disease, etc. And I really began to uh, get very, very interested not only in mental health, but understanding that there was such a scarcity of resources in my community that so many families were in crisis. Uh-huh. And um, did you have any, I mean, did you go to, did you, during college or after college, did you start, did you take any courses in, like, you probably took Psych 101 in college, I presume, but I mean, did you? Actually, I didn't. I was a poli-sci <laughs> major. You know, back then, everybody going to law school was told, you know, you have to major in yes. political science. Yes. Um, and I did. I, t- I took a few, uh, you know, social science, obviously, related courses, but I think it was that particular position uh, involving, believe it or not, three particular families uh-huh. that came to my office basically within 10 days of each other. They were all desperate to find help for their mother or their son or their daughter. And each family, ironically, this is very, very strange, ironically used exactly the same language or words. And they said kind of mysteriously, someone told me you can help my mother or someone told me you can help my son. And, you know, obviously that wasn't, that couldn't have been um, really correct because this program was for people who had no relatives. Hmm. Um, and we were, were alone. Um, but yet they, and I, and I was so um, taken by what they were going through in their plight to try to find uh, mental health uh, treatment and services for their loved ones that, uh, since we're on the couch, I, I guess I can say this, that, mm-hmm. you know, I made, what, if you will, like a private, you know, pledge that if I ever had the opportunity to help these families, I would. And within three weeks, uh, I received a call from an attorney friend of mine saying that there was a new position involving huh. mental health it was a very, um, you know, a very controversial new position, but uh, it was also highly responsible. And the person looking to uh, hire somebody uh, had heard me speak and was interested uh, in whether or not I might want that, be interested in that job. And, of course, oh. I had already made that pledge, so you know well. what my answer was. Well, <laughs> the universe bringing it to you. Yes, ask, believe, receive, and all of that. <laughs> correct. If you listen to those whispers, correct? <laughs> yes. And well, so I spent, uh, that job uh, really was the linchpin to my training for what would ultimately be the first mental health court in the United States because... I was hired to oversee the implementation of a pretty unusual uh, consent decree in a federal act, a federal class action uh, centering on our state uh, psychiatric hospital 
that was located in Broward County, but it literally served almost the lower half of the state of Florida. It ended up being a, uh, an amazing training ground for me. We, I served the plaintiffs in this role for uh, Florida's, what is now Disability Rights Florida, and we had incredible experts that trained me in everything from uh, person-centered psychiatric rehabilitation uh, to systems of care to, uh, you know, all kinds of innovations in uh, mental health uh, services and um, disability rights law. So it was a very, very important role for me. Well, and, and illnesses like schizophrenia and manic depressive illness? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you know, thing- I mean, the in the class members that I served uh, in the state hospital that was under the federal class action consent decree. I mean, the residents of of this state hospital. This is back now in the in the uh, that class action started actually in the late '80s. It settled uh, basically in the mid '90s, and you could imagine that there was virtually every kind of cognitive uh, or psychiatric disability and mental illness, including traumatic brain injuries and developmental disabilities, you know, that we call intellectual disabilities now, of course, uh, that resided in that institution literally for decades. And so it was, it was, um, it was a class action against the, the hospital because of the lack of, uh, Yes, good treatment. Because, yes, exactly. It was, mm-hmm. it was for, it was for lack of, uh, providing, uh, basic care, lack of, uh, proper mental health treatment, rehabilitation. Uh, it really was, uh, one of those institutional impact cases. Uh huh. Well, you know, it's kind of ironic, though, that then, um, you got into, um, the position of presiding over this court. Uh, because, I mean, maybe I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I, I mean, I've done, um, as a psychiatrist, I trained at NYU Bellevue, first of all. Oh, fantastic. And, um, and as part, I was chief resident in the final year. And, uh, as part of that, I, that involved training residents, psychiatric residents at Manhattan State Hospital. Mm-hmm. And then when I came out to California, I consulted for one of the state hospitals here. So I, I have a lot of experience. Um, I mean, I, some of my experience in, is included uh, or includes working at state hospitals. And um, although, yes, a lot of state hospitals, I mean, it's not like, a, you know, it's not, it's not as uh, well-equipped as some, certainly as some private institutions and so on. But, but I think that the doing away with state hospitals pretty much nationwide, I mean, certainly cutting down, if not doing away with altogether, um, has resulted in a lot more people on the streets creating the, the kinds of crimes that I imagine you see in your court. Well, I think a couple of things. Um, yeah, first of all, you know, I think that my, my service, uh, you know, coming from the disability rights sphere, you know, in that regard, um, obviously, my job, I was also 50% uh, my role as a PAMI lawyer. That's the protection and advocacy 
uh, for Individuals with Mental Illness uh, Act, which is, of course, a federal, federal law. And, um, you know, my job was basically to investigate abuse and neglect um, of individuals that were institutionalized in all kinds of facilities, not, not simply, you know, not just uh, state hospitals, of uh-huh. course. Could be nursing homes or ALFs, um, you know, that type of thing. But my, my view, you know, my view is, I think, a little broader uh, in terms of really studying. And I think in, in the Court of Refuge, actually, it does a pretty reasonable job, you know, of talking about, you know, what happened, if you will, you know, at the time when President Kennedy had such a vision for the 1963 Community Mental Health Act. And then, of course, you know, within a month after the passage of the signing of that legislation, of course, he, he was assassinated. And, you know, that, that uh, vision, if you will, of community-based mental health court care just simply never came to fruition. Right. Um, it, and it still has not come to fruition, right. in my view, because of centuries literally centuries of historic uh, stigma and discrimination surrounding mental health. And, of course, as a forensic psychiatrist and um, in my role as, as a longtime, um, I guess, mental health um, advocate, uh, we know that recovery, recovery is real and, and treatment works. Yes, absolutely. And, yes, that is, it was a great idea, the community mental health, but the problem is that no one really followed through. There were no funds and so on to follow, and no structure to follow through. Well, we need to take a break. Um, my okay. guest is his judge, Ginger Lerner Wren. Uh, her book is called A Court of Refuge, Stories from the Bench of America's First Mental Health Court. And when we come back, we will hear some of those stories. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. 
The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here with a really interesting guest, Judge Ginger Lerner Wren. Um, did your mother watch, uh, what was the show? Gilligan's um, Island. Is that yes, what you're going to go. say? What? Gilligan's Island? Yes, yes. Is that, is that how she... <laughs> Um, actually, I'm a little. I, I wish I, I was. I'm a little older than that. You know, I always asked her about that name. Yeah. Um, it was great for running for office because I ran with the greatest little ice spice gingerbread cookies. Ah. Um, but it's an unusual name. I think it's a rose. Ah. Okay. Well, yes. No, it's a great name. I just wondered if that was for. You know, that's that was the inspiration. Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> Judge Ginger Lerner Wren is the author of a new book called A Court of Refuge, Stories from the Bench of America's First Mental Health Court. And so tell us about, well, first of all, how it, uh, how it uh, evolved from um, a, a, being an offshoot of the criminal division of your court held during lunch hour without any money, and, and how do people get referred to your court, and tell us all about it. Sure. I'll give you, you know, um, I could take a week. I don't have that. But, you know, the, my, I'm so proud of my community because it really was uh, a number of precipitating problems that led to the creation of the court. It led to a grand jury investigation of our community-based uh, mental health system, but largely because of a high-profile case, a criminal sure. case, involving a young man actually with traumatic brain injury by the name of Aaron Wynn. And Aaron Wynn uh, became the catalyst for this court after uh, he was released from a forensic psychiatric hospital after suffering um, a motorcycle accident that left him um, very seriously disabled with brain injury, uh, one thing led to another, and he had a negative encounter with a police officer, ultimately, as you know, found uh, incompetent to stand trial. And according to medical records, Aaron Wynn literally spent two and a half years uh, in four and five-point restraints huh. in a Florida forensic hospital, and when he was released, um, and his fa- family lived uh, in Broward County, a very, uh, you know, upper-middle-class family. Again, could not find help or services for their son. Aaron's condition had worsened. Uh, he had a panic attack at a grocery store, ran out, and uh, tragically collided with an 85-year-old woman who fell to the pavement and sustained head injuries 
which she uh, died from, and Aaron had been charged with murder. Oh, wow. It was uh, his public defender, uh, Broward County's uh, now public defender, Howard Finkelstein, uh, who led the charge, if you will, uh, for a grand jury uh, investigation, and then a task force ultimately came to the idea of starting a specialized mental health court because they wanted to do something to try to streamline uh, people that were being arrested uh, in our local jails, largely as a result of, of offenses, minor quality of life types of offenses, because they could not access care. And we really had uh, what I talk about as a, a very incredible uh, collaborative effort of shared vision that we just wanted to take a stand uh, against the criminalization of people uh, being arrested with mental illnesses, and the court was just our community's leap of faith. Hmm. Well, that's uh, so. And so, what happened after he after he inadvertently killed that woman? He um, the what ultimately happened is that he was. Um, committed to a private brain injury institution, institute in Florida, the only one for individuals with traumatic brain injury, after his family actually sued the state of Florida uh, for civil rights violations on a civil matter. Um, And the case ultimately, of course, uh, transitioned into that commitment. So that's what happened uh, ultimately, to Aaron Wynn, he's still there. The book is dedicated to Aaron Wynn and his and his courageous family, uh. who endured so much. Uh, and to me, they really symbolize, you know, the need for our nation to really invest and prioritize mental health in America. Yes, more than ever. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. So, in other words, so if he hadn't been been um, treated so inhumanely for the time that he was strapped in restraints for all those years. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking of just releasing somebody from that kind of situation just out into society and thinking that he they, didn't need you know, more this, help. Look, you know, I hate to say this, but um, that is not uncommon, that kind of inhumane treatment if you go and you... Uh, read Human Rights Watch is ill-equipped and it's callous and cruel and all the other surveys involving human rights violations and disability rights matters involving persons with mental illnesses. This, the, um, you know, the maltreatment uh, is, is not uncommon. The criminalization, yeah. I've always said that the criminalization of people with mental illnesses largely uh, is a matter of human rights and... Um, the mental health court in Broward County is considered, quite frankly, a human rights strategy. Uh-huh. So how do people get referred to your court? People, uh, first of all, it is a misdemeanor court. All, all um, nonviolent misdemeanor offenses up to a year in jail. And we really created a very, very uh, consumer-friendly, if you will, referral process. Anybody could make a referral to the court. By, by calling my office, we have a rapid 
uh, docketing system because we, we understood and understand that people that are, are entering our criminal justice system are often in need of acute psychiatric stabilization and treatment. So uh, from a hierarchy, if you will, of values and needs, we were really looking to find and intercept individuals that we knew were coming into the court system, the criminal justice system, who in fact uh, easily could have been and should have been diverted into the civil uh, community-based system of care. Yes, so... Uh, The court is what's called a problem-solving court. It is not a trial court. It is a voluntary treatment-oriented court, and it, it draws... You know, some uh, similarities from our very popular drug court uh, model in the United States, and we apply a law reform science called therapeutic jurisprudence that really, if you will, kind of realigns court process to allow for individuals to have voice, for to tell their stories, and to you know, be able to really interact and relate to the courts so we can build trust and connectivity and really be able to promote engagement and care. So tell us some of the stories. What are some of the cases that uh, touched your heart the most? Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I, I will be, I, I guess, a little spoiler. Uh, you know, in terms of the book, which includes a composite of so many cases, we've, I've heard over, we've had over 20 thousand individuals diverted out of Broward County jails, by the way, through Broward's mental health court. Wow. Um, We get no money. I think I told you that. We were the model for the American uh, Law Enforcement and Mental Health Project Act in 2000 that seated and piloted other mental health courts. And I think one of my favorite stories, I just saw her, I just saw her in my court yesterday involves a a woman, a wonderful, she's a community case manager, but many years ago she uh, was, she found herself living on the streets uh, as a result of a a very um, emotionally upsetting divorce uh, situation where she uh, literally just really could not manage uh, all of... um, uh, what was happening in terms of the distress in her life, and she believes uh, now that she actually had some unidentified mental health problems, and she lost her children, and after that she felt if she didn't have her children, she didn't need her beautiful, you know, four-bedroom home, and she literally walked out and remained homeless uh, until she found herself arrested uh, on a petty theft charge for stealing, of all things, five harmonicas huh. uh, from a, of a novelty huh. store in a South Florida mall. And uh, she was homeless and in jail, and she found herself in mental health court in the early years and was very, very motivated to get her children back. And her name is Catherine. Yes, and so what... And I think Catherine's story is not unique um, in the sense that, you know, she realized that life uh, was spinning, if you will, 
you know, really out of control, and she thought she could manage, you know, all of this distress, and one thing led to another, and she had a break. She had a psychiatric breakdown, and she uh, ultimately got referred to the mental health court. At the time, we uh, referred her to our own uh, homeless uh, facility that supported the court, and she spent, she's very fortunate, she, she was able to spend uh, almost a year uh, at a residential treatment facility being able to work on managing her health. She ended up being diagnosed with bipolar disorder and then returned to college, and she's been working as a community mental health case manager for one of our local treatment providers for 15 years now. Wow. Well, that's a great story. Um, it, 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 it is a great story. And, you know, there's so many stories um, like that where either people, you know, just don't know what to do or families do not know where to go for help. Um, when they see or realize that, you know, something is happening in their family, whether it's their son or their daughter or husband or wife, and um, they really, you know, they really need help with everything, everything from health literacy to navigation of systems and to really understand that there's hope uh, for recovery for people with mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. And that's what the court provides. So would people like, like that lady or, um, or other people who need mental health services, I mean, who pays for these after you decide in the court that um, what, what should be? I mean, do you? Yeah, do that's you a of, fantastic question because, you, you know, we already, did, uh, you know, um, indicated that we don't have any, any funding. But, you know, our community collaborative all the uh, mental health providers and human social service providers in our community really uh, came together, and they wanted to serve this court, which took a lot because it meant they had to realign their services in order to serve a population of individuals in the jail that, quite frankly, even though they may have been serving them the week before, they were very siloed. And we really had to break these silos down uh, in order to form a more seamless collaborative. And, you know, in order to divert people out of jail, we need to have a high, high level of coordination, transportation, and integration, you know, between all of these agencies across an entire county. It's an incredible leadership feat. Uh, Not to, you know, pat myself or anybody on the back, but it really is something uh, to be able to coordinate that kind of, of, of integrated system of care uh, between a criminal justice system and a community system. So I really think it's the will of a community uh, to lead change. So are you saying that individual therapists and hospitals and clinics um, are donating services to the court? Yes. Meaning, I don't know if donating is the right word, but they are serving them, correct? And it's because we're taking individuals out of the jail and, and linking. We're making these linkages. I have a clinician. I have a 
fabulous uh, licensed clinical social worker that I literally found at the state hospital and recruited for this role in the court. She's been with me now for 19 years. Her name is Janice Blendon. She is embedded uh, in the court, and we do all of our clinical screening assessment, triage, and problem solving right in the court. Uh, we really wanted everything to be out in the open, the good, the bad, the ugly, the joyful, and it's really quite an uh, amazing court process to watch. So, but I'm still, so in other words, they come to the court and she does an evaluation of them right there or makes an appointment? or Yeah, she does. She'll do screening right in the court. We start to develop treatment. She'll start to develop treatment planning based on their needs and preferences, of course, um, right in the courtroom, and then we coordinate, uh, you know, care, and they will be released uh, to to go ahead and start their care uh, coordination process uh to engage in care. Mm -hmm. So, but you're, okay, so you were saying that it's not that these uh, mental health professionals or the hospitals or whatever donate, but who are still who are they being paid by? Meaning they're all so they're part of the public funding safety net. I see. So, so like and, and if people do have insurance, or some uh-huh. of our people, you know, have Medicaid or Medicare or or managed care, um, you know, we just basically use our existing community resources as best we could. And I we see. centralize them through the court process. I see. I see. Well, that's uh, that. Yes, it must have taken, and it must continue to take a huge amount of coordination. Absolutely, because people just get lost. You know, they wonder. It does. The we we, are, we have to be very. We're very very tight on our tracking, and you know, we really, you know, we want to make sure. Not so much people have a misconception of the court. I think, and one reason I wrote the book, um, Carol, is I wrote the book because, you know, we think about compliance and accountability, uh, and oftentimes people think, oh, you know, people don't want care, and there's mm-hmm. this, I think, a relatively false view that people don't engage, yes. but the truth of the matter is, you know, when you take the time, when you're strength-focused, yes. when, you, when you really, uh, you know, convey that kind of compassion yes. and passion for people's health care. Yes, and absolutely. you're talking about it from a, a medical science vantage point to reduce stigma. You'd be surprised. I mean, engagement is really, you know, the big, the big, I think, enchilada in mental health. And when people uh, want care and are willing to receive care, you know, you really see people just soar in terms yes. of their recovery. Yes, absolutely. Well, we can talk a little bit more about that and, and some other stories when we come back. Um, my guest is Judge Ginger Lerner Wren. We're talking about her book and her court. The book is called Court of Refuge, Stories from the Bench of America's First Mental Health Court, and that is in Broward County, Florida. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the 
the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with my guest, Judge Ginger Lerner Wren. She is uh, the author of a new book called A Court of Refuge, Stories from the Bench of America's First Mental Health Court. And we've been talking about that. Um, is there anything, you know, I don't know why, you know, I was saying actually before we started the show, I was uh, telling Judge Lerner Wren that even though I've been a psychiatric expert witness for over 20 years, I haven't uh, come across, and doing and working on cases nationwide, I haven't come across a court like hers. And, um, and I guess maybe one reason, now that you've been explaining it, one reason is because you don't have psychiatric expert witnesses in your court because it's not really a trial. That's correct. It's a problem-solving treatment court. That's correct. So um, the forensic... Uh, for example, the only reason for uh, we've ever had forensic psychologists and psychologists in our court is when they're actually faculty members, to, you know, bringing in their class, um, like the great Dr. Lenore Walker, who headed our forensic psychology division for Nova Southeastern University, where I'm also an adjunct, you know, and I, I'm going to see a class, you know, students tomorrow, uh, or excuse me, Thursday morning in the court because it is quite a teaching model and there will be another forensic psychologist coming who's also an educator so that's kind of the intersection there but you're Uh right we're not putting anybody on the stand to make evidentiary types of determinations from that vantage point Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um... well does are you i mean you were saying that there are in fact that you have spawned (laughs) 
yours was the first, but there are now other other such courts that are have been popping up. Um, but are you? I mean, how, are you happy with the number that there are? Are you frustrated that there aren't more? Or are you hoping your book will maybe generate more courts? Well, that's in, that's such a fascinating question. Um, you know, we started the. I was very young uh, when I first came to the bench. It was over 20 years ago. I was in my, my mid-30s back then, and I think I was also pretty, uh, I guess if you said, what are, Judge Ren, well, you know, what, are you, what is one of your large, greater weaknesses? I think it's my, my naivete and optimism. Um, you know, I felt so outraged as a young lawyer hearing about the trend of the criminalization of people with mental illness. I I just could not imagine that people were being jailed as a result of a medical illness. I, I still cannot fathom that, and yes. that is largely the case. One out of every three, you know, inmate in America's jails has some kind of serious and persistent mental illness. Um, and so, when I started the, when we started the court, and I really felt that the public would share that outrage, and all of a sudden, you know, there'd be this tipping point and a movement to really start investing and prioritizing in community mental health care. Instead, there was a tipping point, uh, there was a movement, and the movement was really more more so from a backdoor uh, vantage point, and that was to create more mental health courts and also the springboard, which is veterans' courts, and all kinds of hybrid models uh, of behavioral health collaborative courts that are all across the United States, including California. And now, uh, it, of course, it's a global model. In 2013, the court was honored at The Hague uh, in the Netherlands uh, as the social justice sustainable model. And um, it's, it really, this court model actually fits very, very well into courts uh, in, uh, in Europe um, and uh, in undeveloped countries as a result of the fact that it doesn't take a lot uh, in terms of revenue streams to bring this court um, into, into uh, fruition, if you will, but it does take collaboration and, and will of, of service providers. So that's an interesting facet of the court, but I really felt and I still feel that the answers are not necessarily these kinds of courts, although there are judges uh, and attorneys uh, and prosecutors, you know, all over the United States doing good work and uh, trying to create pathways to mental health care and break arrest cycles, but I really do think the answer is to prioritize a, a public health model of behavioral health in the United States, that that really does that really does um, you know uh, enhance access uh, to quality care. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, what has happened is, is that the uh, the jails and the prisons have become the state hospitals, uh, except for the fact that they don't provide. Uh, you know the the same kind of treatment uh, treatment that's focused on mental. Yeah, it's hardly on, hardly a recovery oriented setting, right? <laughs> and you know, um, you you probably know this that um, there is a big shortage in um, these these forensic these jails are uh, are dying for 
um, forensic psychiatrists and psychologists to work in, in the jails because that's not, you know, it's it's so funny. It, well, it's not funny, but uh, I guess odd um, that you know, for on these job uh, descriptions, that part of it is that you you wear a mask. Do you know about this? Um, no. That they force the, yes. They uh, there's a whole list of things that you would be doing, the kind of work you'd be doing, and so on. And um, they talk about how they you would be um, provided with like a mask, you know, like a gas mask, a, a uh, oh, you know, something that uh, prevents germs from coming in, and also protection, like uh, like you like universal protection in healthcare. No, no, I mean like uh, like like. Physical, um, like a oh. uh, God, I forget what you call it. Like uh, some kind of not an armored uh, suit exactly, but some. In other words, to wear wear a mask and wear protection, protective gear. Well, I, I don't know why anybody would want to go and and into those conditions and, and work like that. I I I've not heard of that. No. Yes. Well, maybe it's just California. I don't know, but um, yes, it's not very encouraging when you. And plus, you have to be. You have to know not just psychiatry or psychology, but you have to know how to not let prisoners escape. Wow. <laughs> you have to be well, able to to somehow not stop exactly the kind of helping profession that yes, people right. are thinking about. <laughs> Prevent them from from escaping. Um, so yes, it's, this is a huge, huge problem. I mean, you know, getting back to why I think there should be a resurgence of the state hospitals, obviously, um, to be more, more helping oriented than some of them were, or to you know, to be, to be upgraded. Well, I don't know. I, I think respectfully, I, I disagree. Um, you you know, don't I think, think that we be. need. I do think we need hospitals, like we need hospitals. I mean. You know, if we're really going to be serious about integrated care and patient safety and all of that uh, and building up our continuum of care, then it makes sense. I mean, we need longer-term hospitals. We need shorter-term hospitals. We need, uh, you know, urgent care centers um, for people with behavioral health. I don't know why, you know, health is health. And so I think that, you know, I think that historically, uh, you know, the, the record, if you will, for, you know, is well set, uh, that these types of institutions are rife with abuse and neglect, and um, well, they're really, they're really not, uh, they're really not healthcare, healthcare driven or recovery driven. I think that we know, I think we actually know what works in mental health, and that um, it's really a question of our policymakers having the will you know, to prioritize behavioral health uh, in our communities. Well, um, you know, I mean, yes, there have been some of those abuses in the past in some places, absolutely, but it doesn't mean that future places has to ha- have to have uh, the same kinds of problems. And for certain, you know, mental illnesses, it's really, uh, and when the person doesn't have a family who is able to help them or or the person has been violent at home or has, you know, has other problems at home and so the family doesn't want to keep them or, you know, keep close relations with them, which is always very sad. But, um, you know, there are are a lot of situations where, um, you know, we were talking kind of what we were talking about before where you have to sort of keep close tabs on people. Not everyone can survive um, in 
the kinds of, well, especially since there no, aren't enough. I think enough. that's true. I, I think that's true, but I, I, I am very much more aligned, you know, with, with more of a public health approach. So I, I think we'll just have to, you know, I, I, I agree with you t- to a certain point, of course, um, but largely we've never really, uh, I, I, we've never really had the capacity to scale uh, of what we need in terms of community-based care, and I think that, for example, across the country, um, the National Association of Counties and the Council of State Governments and the, actually the American Psychiatric, Psychiatric um, Association, you know, is supporting the reduction, um, you know, obviously of individuals in correctional settings and promoting um, strategies for pathways uh, and access to community care. And I, I really think that um, early intervention uh, is very, very important. And if we really start talking about that and talking about children's mental health, then you know there's a new uh, standard of practice now that all youth is going to be universally screened now for depression. Um, through the Pediatrics uh, Academy of uh, Association. I think that's so important. Yes, yes. Um, you know, yes. I mean, that's one of the, you know, everybody's jumping to the conclusion of banning guns as the total solution or the only solution for, you know, school shootings. And really, a lot more important is screening for kids when they're in elementary school and middle school and um, it, not just for depression, but... Um, you know, all kinds of other uh, you know, hallucinations and, and uh, all kinds of other m- mental problems. And these people, if, you know, if they are kind of like, you know, if they're, if they're put into treatment uh, soon enough, these kinds of things could be avoided. Um, like what they, you know, certainly as an example, again, Nicholas Cruz gave warning signs since when he was certainly in, in elementary school already, there were warning signs, and he is not alone um, many no, other no, of course, no, not at all. And I, and I'm, you know, I was very pleased uh, to see, for example, I don't know if you saw, um, you know, the 60 Minutes episode a couple weeks ago with Oprah Winfrey talking about the ACE study, the impact of adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. and trauma. You know, and while of course that's a very, it's an older, long, you know, it's one of our longest um, now. Uh, largest studies from the CDC uh, and Kaiser Permanente with regards to adverse childhood experiences. You know, we re- that information really does need to get down to our to every every household. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, it's it's not really a new <laughs> it's not really a new um, a new you know uh, invention or a new. I mean, I, I guess, you know, unfortunately, a lot of most people don't really know about it. But, yes, the idea of uh, adverse childhood events, the more that you have, the more likely you are to, to suffer a severe mental illness or to uh, get into all kinds of troubles where they might right, end up or have, or have medical conditions. And, and I think that, um, you know, the idea of all of these strategies, Carol, that I think about and that I am optimistic about you know, if you kind of put all the pieces together with these schools, for example, that are adopting more of a restorative justice approach uh, mm-hmm. in their schools are very, very optimistic to me in terms of, well, promoting resilience in our children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, there are a lot of things that our children need to become more resilient about. Um, 
One so of them, true. of course, is terrorism. And uh, I just wrote a book called Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. That's for kids wow. to learn about terrorism. So, but let's not talk, let's talk about, remind people of your book, which is A Court of Refuge, Stories from the Bench of America's First Mental Health Court. Well, I certainly hope that all of this really does help to, uh, to promote what you're doing, more, get more people to know about it, and get more uh, counties to do the same kind of court that you're doing. So oh, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you so much for giving me space on your couch. <laughs> you're very welcome. And I appreciate it, and I appreciate the work that you're doing and the promotion of mental health and wellness and safety uh, for our children that you're doing uh, through your work. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 